I'm put on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so it's uh, the third part of me looking at Dark Ascension, the design of Dark Ascension. And so when last we left, I think I got up through F. So today we're starting with G. And the first card is Gather the Townsfolk, which is a sorcery that costs one and a white, so two mana. You make two 1-1 human creature tokens, but it has the Fateful Hour ability. So the Fateful Hour ability says if you are at five or less life, instead of getting two tokens, you get five tokens. So the design of the Fateful Hour stuff, um, probably the design name, uh, something like Desperation or something. The, the idea was, uh, in times of great desperation, you know, when you're, when you're closest to, to loss, when you really got to buckle down, that you're able to sort of do things to help you. Uh, and the design of Fateful Hour, the idea was, we want to give effects that would help you, when you're on the verge of losing, not lose. And so token making is a good example. Like, okay, I'm losing. Well, getting a bunch of tokens might help me. So on the Fateful Hour, it's like, well, one W, you get two tokens. That's fine. I mean, I, I, that's something we do all the time. And the idea is, okay, and in special circumstances, you can up it. So... You know, early in the game, getting two tokens for two mana is fair. And late in the game, getting five tokens for two mana is really good. Okay, next. Giralf's Messenger. BBB, 3-2, Zombie. Uh, enters the battlefield tapped. When it enters the battlefield, opponent loses two life. And it has Undying. So a couple things. First off, this is an Undying creature. So remember, Undying is... It comes back with a plus one, plus one counters. The opposite of persist. Or it's persist, but instead of minus one, minus one counters, it gets plus one, plus one counters. So it comes back stronger. Um, and I, I talked about this when I t- earlier that, you know, you kill the monster and you think it's dead. But, oh, no, it's not. It comes back even stronger. Um, it also has an enter the battlefield effect where the idea is when it enters the battlefield, they lose two life. So it dying coming back also will trigger the enter the battlefield effect. So uh, ETB effects, if you will, work really well with undying because they come back a second time. Um, so this card was definitely a lot of black in it, black, 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 for a 3-2. Um, and it's pretty good because it's a 3-2 that they lose two life and it comes back, and it's a 4-3 where they lose two life. So it definitely is a very um, a pretty aggressive, aggressive card. Um, so real quick, let's talk about the name, Giralf's Messenger. So when Creative was um, writing the flavor text for um, Innisrod, uh, one of the things you try to do is you want to have characters that can represent aspects of the set. And so the creative team came up with uh, Gir- uh, Gisa and Giralf, who were brother-sifter, and one of them was... They were both necromancers, but one of them was um, a stitcher, and one of them was like a normal necromancer, meaning one raised things from the dead and one scientifically made things. Um, and then... The name show they showed up in Flavor Text and Industry. I think they showed up a little bit in names in Dark Ascension, but they never got cards. And what we've learned is every once in a while, players just attach to certain characters and then they expect cards for the characters. And we didn't provide those. So we later ended up putting them in a commander product. But it's one of those things where people always say, Why didn't you include? You had a cool character. Why didn't he, he or she get a card? And the answer a lot of times is, um, we don't always realize at the time we're making cards that those are going to be the pop- popular characters. In fact, I don't even think... This card... Remember, the way it works is we design cards. They then get developed. Then late in development, long, long after design is done, they get names and flavor text. So it is possible for, for 
I mean, and we don't necessarily see the names in flavor text. You know, the developers do, but on design, you're off designing other things. And so it's not like we necessarily know. We go to a creative team and say, who do you want? What legendary characters do you want? And they tell us. Um, so sometimes things will fall through the cracks where they'll make something that's kind of cool, but not everything can be made into a legendary creature. And so it off, usually every block, there's some character or a bunch of characters where people are like, wait, you didn't, I like so-and-so. Where's, where are they as a legendary creature? And so, uh, the good news is with, with supplemental products like commanders, um, it gives us a little bit of ability to sort of make some characters that we, we, we missed first time through. Also, because we're starting to return to worlds, that also will give us some opportunity um, that if we go back to a world, that if we miss something the first time around, we have the opportunity to do that. Um, okay, next, Geralt's Mind Cruncher. So uh, this is a 4 blue blue for a 5-5 five, five zombie horror. When it enters the battlefield, target player mills 5 cards, and it is undying. Um, so this is another enter the battlefield effect with undying. So the idea is it not only mills 5, it kind of like... Um, Kind of the way it works is when it when you play it, it does something, and when it dies, it kind of does something. Um, is a lot how it plays out because it dies and comes right back. So we often do creatures that have an effect that when when it enters enters the battlefield or leaves the battlefield. Um, so undying with an ETB effect, uh, ETBs enter the battlefield. Um, it used to be it's funny a bunch of time um, it used to be comes into play. So we used to call them CIP effects because it comes into play, and then we changed it to it became enter the battlefield. It's so another ETB effect. So. Anyway, magic slaying, changing with the times. Um, anyway, the Mind Crusher's a 5-5 five, five that mills 5, and then Undying, it mills, well, still mills 5, but it becomes a 6-6. Six, six. So it's a 5-5 five, five that turns into a 6-6. Six, six. So one of the, the tricky things about making Undying is um, you have to make a creature that becomes better, and that can be a tricky, a tricky thing, because you want to cost it so it looks exciting when you play it the first time, but the creature's only getting better. You have two creatures, essentially. You have this creature, when it dies, you have a second creature, and the second creature is even better. Persist, you got a second creature, but it was slightly worse. So the better half was up front. This one, the worse half's up front, the better front second. So um, one of the things we have sometimes with mechanics is a thing where the mechanic actually does something powerful, but what you see at first glance seems less powerful, and so players have to kind of understand all the things that are going into it. Um, and one of the things that's tricky is, th- so there are mechanics that have good first impressions and bad first impressions. Good first impression means it looks on front like a really cool card. Where bad at first impression is like, well, you have to figure out why it's better than it might look. Um, now the funny thing is, players tend to like positive abilities versus negative abilities, but it is negative abilities that tend to make cards that look better. You know, if I have some drawback that you don't quite understand, well, on the surface, it might look like a really strong card, where if I have a bonus, we have to cost it less, because there is a bonus. Um, so it's funny, because players like to have good first-impression cards, but they like cards with more upside, and those two things kind of fight each other. Okay, next, Ghoul Tree. Seven and a green for a 10-10 zombie tree folk. Uh, and it costs one less for each creature card in your graveyard. So the idea is the Ghoul Tree, zombie tree folk, uh, I didn't know. This might be our first zombie tree folk. I don't know if we've done a lot of zombie tree folk. Anyway, um, the idea is green has this flavor in Innistrad block or Innistrad and Dark Ascension of caring about creature cards in the graveyard. So the idea is more things die, the ghoul tree becomes cheaper and cheaper to cast. You know, eight mana for a 10-10 is a little, you know, it's a little expensive. But, you know, I put some things out, they die. Well, for 5G a 10-10, for 4G a 10-10, you know, four and a green for a 10-10 is pretty good. So... Um, the idea is you get out, do the thing you're trying to do, get creature cards in your graveyard, and then you get out at 10-10 pretty efficiently. 
Um, okay, next, Graph Digger's Cage. So it's an artifact that costs one. It says creatures can't enter the battlefields from the graveyard or library, and players can't cast cards in the graveyard or the library. So one of the things we like to do when we make a set is make sure that there are answers to threats in the set. Like a set lets you do cool things, and like, okay, well, this gets out of hand. We need to have an answer. Um, now, it used to be we used to put the answer in the set following the set. Like, well, here is a block, and it does a cool thing, and the block after it will have the answer just in case it gets out of control. And what we learned is that's kind of dangerous, that things sometimes can spiral, and you want to have your answers quicker than the next block. So the thing we do now is we tend to put the answers within the same block. Usually it's at the tail end of the block, not always. Um, but here's a good example where, okay, we're, we're doing flashback and creatures cast out of the graveyard. Okay, that can be problematic. Let's have an answer in case it really is problematic. And so we put the answer in Dark Ascension. Um, and, and that, it is important. Like one of the things to remember about magic is that you want to make sure that you create threats, but you always have answers for the threats you create. Now, the threats and the answers can, don't always have to be obvious. You know, sometimes the answers to the threats can be a little more subtle, that players could have to seek out the answers. But sometimes, like this card, they can be pretty blunt. This one's a pretty blunt answer. Not all our answers are blunt. We like to sort of, sometimes there's some blunt answers, sometimes there's some sneaky answers. But we definitely want to make sure there's answers. Okay, Grave Crawler. Black, single black, one mana for a 2-1 zombie. It can't block. Uh, and you can cast it from your grave if you control a zombie. So I believe this card started in um, Innistrad. We designed it in Innistrad. Um, it just got cut for numbers. We knew it was really good. I think maybe it, it got pushed back just because sometimes we like to make sure that there's good um, stuff in both sets. Um, we wanted to kind of ramp up, the, I think, the zombies a little bit, so I think they pushed it back to the second set. Um, the reason it can't block, by the way, is if you can come back all the time, that makes you really defensive. I can, like, be a, you know, I can chump you forever. We wanted this to be an aggressive card and not a defensive card. Um, one of the flavors of zombies in general is the zombies just keep coming after you. And so this card got made because we were trying to find different ways to go, how do we create an endless wave of zombies? That's what we wanted for the zombies. That, like, you can kill a zombie, there's just going to be more zombies. That's how zombies work. That, you know, the reason you lose to zombies is not because one or two zombies attack you, it's because 10 zombies attack you, or 20 zombies attack you, or just, they never stop attacking you, the zombies keep coming. So there's a lot of different ways to make that happen, but one of the ways is, how about a zombie that keeps coming back? You know, that you, you kill it, but ah, not dead yet. It's a zombie. Um, and this card ended up being really good, it, it definitely got played in the zombie deck. In fact, it got played in some decks other than zombie decks, just because uh, a 2-1 for B that keeps coming back, is, it's pretty strong. Um, okay, Grave Tiller. A Grave Tiller Worm. So it's five in the green for a four-four worm. It's got trample, and then for morbid, it comes in with four plus one plus one counters. So this is an example of one of the things when you make a mechanic is uh, you have to figure out how much variance you want. Which means is if I do the thing being asked of me versus not doing the thing, how much of a reward do I get? And what we tend to do is usually the first set gives you a slightly smaller reward, and the second set will will increase the variance a little bit, just to sort of make the mechanic have a little more a little more sort of aggression in the second set. Um, so this is a good example where five five in a green, so six mana for a four four with trample, eh, nothing special. That's not particularly good. But an eight eight with trample is really good. And so the idea is this card really wants you to get something dead. You know, something should die that you're not gonna play this card most of the time unless something has died. Um, and so you you want to range, by the way, of how much variance there is, because you want you want some cards that you more often than not will just cast normally. 
Um, but if the, if the situation occurs, okay. And some cards that you won't normally cast, usually you'll wait for the situation. And some that are in the middle, you want a variance. And this card's definitely on the, the side of, well, you really kind of want the morbid to happen in order to cast this thing. Okay, next, Grim Flowering. Five and a green sorcery. Draw a card for each creature card in your graveyard. So one of the things is blue is number one in creature, I'm sorry, in card drawing. Green and black share number two. Black always says you have to spend some resource to get it. It's usually spending life or a creature or something. Green is just tied to creatures. Green, green can have aggressive card drawing, but it's tied to its creatures. It, you can't just in raw draw cards. I know Harmonize and Planar Chaos confuses everybody, but I think Planar Chaos confuses everybody. So green's card drawing is supposed to be tied to its, its creatures. This, being the graveyard set, says, okay, green has a flavor of caring about creature cards in the graveyard. Okay, well, it makes a lot of sense. Then graveyard, now we have a card-drawing card that cares about not living creatures, but dead creatures. Um, which is a little bit different for green. I mean, it, it's still creature-oriented, but because there's ways to get cards in a graveyard that you haven't even cast, green can do some, you know, mulch. And, green can do some shenanigans to get cards quicker than it normally could, could do. Because normally, you gotta, you know, green has, like, draw a card from a creature in play on the battlefield. Um... And this, this, you can manipulate it a little easier because getting stuff to your graveyard doesn't always require you casting it first, where being on the battlefield does. Okay. Next, Heaven Ghoul Lich. So Heaven Ghoul Lich is a gold card. costs three blue-black for a 4-4 four, four zombie wizard. For one, uh, you can, the, for one, activate. You may cast target creature card from any graveyard. And when cast, card name gains all activated abilities. So the idea is this Lich allows you to, to cast things from your graveyard. It can cast dead things and bring them back. And then, not only does it let you cast them, but this card gains those any activated abilities. So whenever I make a card like this, people always ask, well, why can't I just get any abilities? Why just activated abilities? And the answer there is a rules thing, which is there are a lot of different kinds of abilities, um, and gaining activated abilities causes some confusion. For example... Uh, a very common thing to do on a creature is have an ability that defines its power toughness. Well, it's tricky if a card grants the ability to define power toughness when it already has power toughness. Um, so there's just some things that become problematic. So what we do is when you grant abilities, we tend to grant you activated abilities. You can copy activated abilities. It's a lot trickier. Normally, by the way, if we want to get creature uh, keywords, what you'll notice is we list them. We list them out. That's why, you know, when there's a... I forget the name of it, but like, you know, uh, some creature card in ooze that copies abilities out of the graveyard, it lists them by name. It can't just say activate any, any ability. It has to say, oh, well, if they have flying or first rate, it lists them out and goes, you can gain those abilities. Um, so if you're going to do, if you're not doing activated abilities, you have to list what you want specifically to be able to get them. Um, this card came about, we've been trying to do a card to let you cast creature cards out of your graveyard in this set, in this block. Um, I think the idea was we wanted something we liked the idea of it gaining abilities of dead things, but we needed a way to define which stuff it got. So like, okay, well, what if we put the casting creatures out of your graveyard on this card, and then there's this neat side effect. Um, now, this does have some memory issues where you cast it, and you have to remember that it has those abilities. We're careful how many of these we do, just because you have to remember, okay, I've, act- I've pulled out five creatures, and so these are all the abilities I have. And the creatures you pull out might be dead, so, you know, it- this card definitely has some memory issues. This is a cool card. Um, and, and we like having some cool cards like this, but there is clearly the memory issue you, gotta, you, you have to keep in mind. Okay, Haven Ghoul, Haven Ghoul Rune Binder. Rune Binder, sorry, Rune Binder. Two blue blue, four mana for a 2 2 human wizard. For two, you tap. 
Exile a creature card in your graveyard, put a 2-2 black zombie onto the battlefield, and then put a plus one, plus one counter on each zombie you control. So the idea of this thing is um, it's able to... Um, so blue is does the Frankenstein-style zombies, zombies in which it's, it's using the dead, repurposing the dead. So you have to have a creature card in your graveyard to be able to repurpose. You need to dig up you know, your dead body to, to use your science on. Um, and then the cool thing about this is every time you get a zombie, it not only improves that zombie, so it's not, really you're not making a 2-2, two, two, you're making a 3-3 three, because three, it automatically gets a plus one, plus one counter. But then it takes every other zombie you have and makes them bigger. So as you dig up things, your army gets stronger and stronger. And so one of the things, remember, that we like with the zombie deck is that it grows over time. That the zombie deck isn't fast, but that it, it grows in power and that it slowly overwhelms your opponent. And this ability is kind of a cool way to do that. Um, and and it, it's, both, it's both flavorful and it's just neat. It's, it's a, a blue way to sort of build up your zombies over time. The Hell Vault. So the Hell Vault is a legendary artifact, costs three. For one and tap, exile target creature you control. For seven and tap, exile target creature you don't control. And then when the Hell Vault is put into the graveyard from the battlefield, return all creatures exiled by it back to play. So this card was completely a top-down. So one of the things that uh, the creative team had come up with is they needed a story to explain, well, at the, in, the, in the third act, how exactly, what's the savior of humanity? And the answer is... Uh, uh, an angel named Avacyn. And Avacyn, with Avacyn comes a whole bunch of angels. So what happened is um, Avacyn originally built the Hell Vault, I believe, or someone built the Hell Vault, but Avacyn used it to, to get rid all, of all the demons. There were a lot of demons, and Avacyn was trying to rid the world of what it saw as, um, as the, the evil of the world, which were demons. Um, but along the way... Uh, I'm not sure whether the demons stuck the angels in there or Avacyn saw some of her angels were going astray. Avacyn started going a little nutty and started, I think, putting her own angels in. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Anyway, it was full of angels and demons. Um, and the biggest, baddest demon, which, angel, which uh, Avacyn was trying to stop, the a demon named Grizzlebrand, which you guys will hear about when we get to Avacyn Restored. You, sh- you should know, probably. It's a pretty popular card. Um, and when Avacyn went to get Grizzlebrand into the Hell Vault, he trapped her with him. He took her with him. And so Avacyn got caught in the Hell Vault. Well, Avacyn was the thing... Cre- Avacyn had been created by um, Soren because Soren realized that, his, that the vampires would die out if they ate up all their food sources for the humans. And so in order to sort of keep the humans around, he made Avacyn his protector for the humans. Um, ironically, not really to... Ha- his larger goal wasn't really helping the humans. His larger goal was making sure that humans stuck around as a viable food source for the vampires... But he did, for his own reasons, um, bring the savior to, to the humans. Uh, and when Avacyn goes away, things get pretty dark. Uh, a lot of Avacyn's, you know, magic was helping fuel the weapons of the humans, and so things were looking pretty dark. And we knew the Hell Vault was a major player in the third set. In fact, the pre-release of the third set has to do with this whole opening the Hell Vault, which if those who are around remember that. Then when I get to Avacyn Restored, I'll, I'll talk about that. But anyway, we needed the Hell Vault to show up here because the Hell Vault was important in the third part of the story. And so, um, you know, Chekhov's gun. Like, 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 if you're going to see something in the third act, I mean, usually introduced in the first act, but we introduced it in the second act because um, we wanted to make sure you saw it right before it happened. Um, so anyway, we introduced the Hell Vault. The Hell Vault specifically did something top-down, which was you could trap things in it. And we knew it was going to get opened. And when it opened, everything trapped was going to spill out. We pretty much just made something. We decided what we were going to do is, for uh, practical purposes, is make it so that it exile your stuff, 
uh, cheaply and your opponent's stuff more expensively. The reason being, you're only going to exile your stuff when it's just about to die, where your opponent's stuff you would use as removal. So we made it expensive, so the Hell Vault is expensive removal, but if you ever want to sort of save your own things, things you know are going to die, you can do that and use the Hell Vault as a means to sort of bring them back later. Okay, next. Now, the other thing about Hell Vault that's cool is, as you trap different things, if you trap your stuff in, you kind of want to sacrifice it later on. You want to get it in the graveyard so you can bring back all your creatures. But if you trap your opponent's stuff in it, you kind of don't want. So there's a neat tension there, depending on how do you want to use it. Okay, Hinterland Hermit. 1R for 2-1, human werewolf. Um, so he's a werewolf, which means if at any point no spells get cast at the beginning of the next turn, it flips. And when he flips, he goes from a 2-1 to a 3-2 werewolf who must be blocked if able. Um, and the idea is, this is definitely one of those werewolves where, um, I talk about aesthetics and werewolves, that its power is one greater than its toughness. So when it converts, it stays power one greater than toughness. So it feels like it's the same werewolf. Um, and then red has an ability, red and green both have the ability of must be blocked. Green has straight up lure, which means everything must block me. But both red and green can do, I must be blocked by something. My opponent chooses what? Something has to block me. Not everything, but something has to block me. Um, and the idea was, um, some of our werewolves get to be pretty big. This one is definitely one where it's small, it's cheap, um, but we wanted you to have a curve of werewolves. So this is one of the cheaper werewolves where you can get out in turn two. And sometimes, by the way, you get in turn two, they don't have a play in turn two, bam, all of a sudden you have a turn three play. And, you know, three two must block can eat up a lot of little things. I mean, at some point they'll get out something big enough to defeat it. But it, it can do some damage pretty early. Next, Huntmaster of the Fells. Two red-green, it's a multicolor card for four mana. You get a 2-2 human werewolf. When it enters the battlefield or is transformed uh, into a werewolf, you get a 2-2... Or, or, sorry, when it enters the battlefield or you transform into uh, the human side, you get a 2-2 green werewolf and you gain two life. And then, uh, it's a werewolf, so when no, no spells are cast beginning the next turn, it turns into Ravager of the Fells, which is a 4-4 werewolf with trample. And when you transform into this side, you do two damage to an opponent and two damage to a creature. So the idea is, when you become the human side, you get a 2-2 wolf and you gain two life. And when it goes to the werewolf side, uh, you do two to a creature and you, um, your opponent loses two life. So it's kind of mirrored where, on the one side, you gain two life, and the other side, they lose two life. And then on one side, you get two amount of damage on your side, and the other you do two damage to their side. So it's trying to be reflexive there. Um, it was made to be a werewolf that you wanted to transform. Normally, the way the werewolves tended to work is you transform them, you turn them into werewolves, and just you want them to stay werewolves. This one's a little tricky where um, kind of the way to use this one is you kind of wanted to go back from human to, to werewolf side. Um, and so, um, not, that you, not that you couldn't do, not that you couldn't put it out, transform it, and, and do stuff. Um, you know, if you just played it, you got a 2-2 wolf, gained 2 life, transformed it once, did 2 damage to them, and, and probably killed the creature by shocking something. And then you, you do have a, a big 4-4 werewolf, so... Um, but if your opponent's managed to turn it back, this is definitely um, a nice answer. It gives you something for get it turned back. Okay, next. Immer wolf. One red-green for a 2-2 wolf. It's got Intimidate. Other wolves and werewolves you control get plus 1, plus 1. Non-human werewolves can't transform. So what it did was, um, this is one of the cycle of what we call the captains, although uh, this was not a captain, only because it couldn't be a werewolf because it needed, it wasn't double-faced. Double so we made, uh, we made it a wolf because the, what we did is, 
uh, because werewolves had to be double-faced cards and we didn't have enough of them, we, so we fleshed out that tribe with wolves. So there were werewolves and wolves, and all the things that tended to help werewolves helped wolves. So this was a, the wolf captain. It's not technically a captain because wolves can't be captains. Um, but it did do what the other ones did, which had a keyword, has intimidate. And then it grants plus one, plus one. And the second thing it grants is it keeps werewolves from turning back into wolves. I'm sorry, into humans. That uh, non-human werewolves can't transform. Um, so what that means is, what it says non-human werewolves is, uh, you want your human werewolves to transform. Those are the human side. But if you are a werewolf and not human anymore, you don't transform. So the idea is get it out, and all your werewolves get, get um, not stuck, because you want them to be there, but uh, can't be turned back. And when you have wolf in play, your werewolves will stay werewolves and won't become human again. Okay, next. Increasing confusion. It's a sorcery. Cost X and a blue. Um, target creature mills the top X card. So mills means put the top X cards of the library into the graveyard. And then if you cast it from the graveyard, instead of milling X cards, they mill twice of X. And it has a flashback of XU. Um, so this was a cycle of what we call the increasing cycle. So there's increasing devotion, ambition, vengeance, and savagery, as, opposed to, as well as increasing confusion. Um, there was one in each color, and what they did is they all did something, and then if you flash them back, they did double the effect. So the idea is this was a, a tweak on, on flashback, which was you would do something... And then if you could flash it back, you got a, twice the effect. It was more powerful when you flashed it back. Um, and we were just messing around trying different things. And so it was like the idea that um, normally when you flash something back, the better value is up front and the lesser value is, is on the flashback. Um, and so we were just messing around, like, you know, what if you could do something, but when you flash it back, it just was even better than the first time you did it. Um, and anyway, it was a fun little cycle. Next, Jar of Eyeballs. So Jar of Eyeballs costs three. It's an artifact. So Jar of Eyeballs, by the way, was 100% what we call a top-down design. Um, I gave my... Uh, Jen Helen was the creative representative on both Innistrad and Dark Ascension. And the homework I would give her is, give me good names for cards from the set. Just give me good, flavorful names. And then what we would do is we would design them in the meetings. So one of those names was Jar of Eyeballs. We wrote them down, and we just top-down design. So what, is, what does Jar of Eyeballs do? So when a creature you control dies, put two eyeball counters on card name. Three tap, remove all eyeball counters. Look at X, the X top cards of your library, where X equal the number of eyeball counters. Put one in your hand and the rest in the bottom of your library in any order. So it lets you essentially impulse. Um, let you um, look through X cards in your library and pick the best one. So it lets you sort of tutor but from within the select group of cards. And the idea is, as you kill things, you're collecting eyeballs. I know, I know, I got a lot of... Uh, this is the card I previewed on my Twitter. And people were like, the flavor's wrong. If you kill a Cyclops, you should get one eye counter. And if you kill, you know, uh, something with two heads, you get four eye counters. And I'm like, well, well, that's... that's uh, sometimes flavor has to be uh, shortened a little bit. Most things have two eyes, so we get you two eyeball counters. Um, I had a lot of people write to me saying, wait a minute, what happens when this non-two-eyed thing? And I'm like, okay. Sometimes we just have to write it simply and get the general gist of the flavor, so it's two eyes. Next, Kessig Recluse. Two green-green for a 2-3 spider. It has reach and death touch. Um, so this is what we call a French vanilla. So a French vanilla is a card that has um, nothing but creature keyword abilities. U- usually they're the evergreen creature keywords. Um, and green has both reach and has death touch. Interestingly, we don't put them on cards together all that much. Um, we did here, but we, it's something we do sparingly. 
Um, but we do from time to time. Uh, one of the things that you want to make sure is you want to have a lot of cool, flavorful things um, that are new to the set. But you also want to have just some things that are using some base resources available. Um, the idea of a, a nasty spider felt, made, made a lot of sense in this environment. You know, made match the flavor. Um, but not every card is supposed to go, what? You know, like, you don't want to tax the, your player with every card they look at. It's why we have vanilla creatures and French vanilla creatures and just simple sorceries and instants. And you want some of the cards to go, okay, I, I got it, I got it. I know what this thing does. Next, Lamholt Elder. It's two and a green for one, two human werewolf. Uh, and when it, it, it turns into a werewolf, it becomes Silver Pelt Werewolf, which is a four, five werewolf. And when it deals combat damage, draw a card. So remember to talk about variants of how you want to stretch your variants. So here's a good example of a high variance card. So three mana for a one-two card. That is junky. Junky, junky, junky. You would never play three mana for a one-two. But what happens? When it turns into a werewolf, it becomes a four-five werewolf that every time it damages your opponent, it, you draw a card. Would you pay three mana for that? Absolutely. You wouldn't blink to do that. So the idea is, here's a card that's very vulnerable in its... Um, in its human phase. And by the way, note, by the way, one of the things I think it, the flavor of this is it's a... I think when we made the card, it was like Librarian was our, our, our design name because they, uh, they like to read the books and they come to the werewolf, ah, and then they gain knowledge and things. Anyway. Um, but this is a good example of a card that has a high variance where, you know, one of the funds of the card is getting it out and protecting it because it's really weak until it turns into a werewolf. But once it becomes a werewolf, look out. It's a dangerous werewolf. It's a very powerful werewolf. Okay. Next, Lingering Souls. Two white sorcery. Put two 1-1 one, one white spirit creature tokens with flying into play. Flashback 1-B. So this might be the strongest card in the set. It's, it's, it's up there. Uh, it, it was a staple in Constructed. Um, I think they were really aggressive. One of the things that Tom, Tom Lapilli was the head developer, he really was trying to make sure that the white-black deck could be something that would play in Constructed. And uh, as they say, mission accomplished. Uh... White-black I put on the map, and this card really, really is a big part of it. Um, and the funny thing is, making two 1-1 flyers for free mana is, is good. It's not, not amazing, but it's okay. But being able to make two more for uh, two mana, one in a black, is really good. Uh, and so in general, this card, on some level, I mean, you could break it up over turns, but for five mana, you got four 1-1 flying creatures. Uh, you needed to play two different colors to get this, but it's pretty potent. It ended up being a very, very powerful card. I think... When you ask Tom about this set, it's the one card developmental. He's like, oh, I probably costed it incorrect. Um, that it was probably a little bit too good. How are we, how are we doing on time? Um, okay, well, I'm, I just got to work. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through a few more cards here just because I, I have a... Um, I'm, trying to, I'm going to finish off this page. So Lost in the Woods, three green green enchantment. Uh, whenever a creature attacks you or your planeswalker... Whenever a creature attacks you or your planeswalker, you may reveal the top card of your library. If it's a forest... Remove that creature from combat. Then uh, any revealed cards put on the bottom of your library. This was a top-down card. We were worried at the end that we were a little light on top-down cards because we'd really just hit the ball out of the park in Innistrad. And Dark Ascension was a little light, mo- mostly because we had done so much of that in Innistrad um, that Tom, at the end, felt that we needed a little bit more. Uh, and, and what he wanted was um, some quirky top-down stuff that was just kind of like weird but you know, fit this world. So we made a couple cards. In fact, the two cards I think we made in this session was Lost in the Woods and Seance. We might have made one or two others, but we were just trying to make something that was kind of quirky and, like, we wanted a few cards that you couldn't make anywhere but here. Um, and this card is just a very quirky, kind of top-down flavor card 
of this green defensive card that's all about getting lost in the woods, which is a, tr- a trope in horror. Next, Loyal Cathar. So Loyal Cathar is a, for white-white, so two, two mana, is a 2-2 human soldier with vigilance, and when it dies, you transform it. And it becomes un- Unhallowed Cathar, which is a 2-1 zombie soldier that can't block. So remember I said we had a little cycle of humans that died into monsters? Uh, the idea, just trying to show the, how bad it was for humans, we wanted to have a human double-faced card in each of the four. We wanted, I mean, werewolves was easy because werewolves already human that turned into werewolves. But we wanted a human that turned into a vampire, a human that turned into a zombie, a human that turned into a spirit. So this is the, the zombie. So, uh, and this one is pretty straightforward. It's like, I'm, I, I'm my thing, I die, I come back a zombie. Uh, and we decided to make it a little weaker. So it has 2-2 Vigilance on one side. It comes back 2-1, can't block. So once again, trying to mirror things a little bit, like 2-2 Vigilance means I'm extra able to block, and then 2-1, can't block, I can't, you know, like, it goes from being more able to block to less able to block, so kind of that mirror. Um, and the idea was a 2-2 Vigilance for WW is pretty good. You know what I'm saying? It's not amazing, but it is definitely, like, you're getting a decent amount of value. And the fact that it dies into another creature, a 2-1 creature, it, you know, is, is, is decent. Okay, last card of the day. Markov Blademaster. One red red for a 1-1 one, one vampire warrior with double strike and a slith ability. Slith ability is whenever I deal combat damage to an opponent, I get a plus one, plus one counter. So we were trying to make, we were trying to make a more juiced up vampire. So double strike and the slith ability go really well together because it hits, the, it hits them twice. That double strike not only hits them, but hits them at two different times. You do one source of damage during your... Um, Main phase, and one, one during first strike damage, and then one during your main damage. So the idea is, I have a one-run vampire. If I'm able to hit you, let's say I get this thing out, um, it immediately becomes a 3-3. Three, three. Um, and then, remember, it has double strike. So, you know, when it first attacks you, it does two damage. becomes a 3-3. Three, three. Now it does six damage, and becomes a 6-6. Six, six. Then it does uh, 12 damage, and becomes a 12-12. Twelve, twelve. Um, so every, every time it hits you... Is that right? Did I say that right? It's a 1-1 one, one that hits you and does 2 damage, and then becomes uh, gets 2 counters, becomes a 3-3. Three, three, and then it hits you for 6 damage. Oh, it gets 2 more counters, it becomes a 5-5. Five, five. And then it hits you for 10 damage, and becomes a 7-7. Seven, seven. So, sorry, I said that wrong. But anyway, it was definitely a very juicy card that's sort of like, you know, if you could get this out and get it through. And, and you only need to get it through once or twice before it became a really dangerous card. Okay, so we've gotten up to M. Next time, we'll start with Micaiah the Unhallowed, which is an awesome card. But anyway, I'm now parked in my parking spot, so we all know what that means. It means it's the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic, and I'll talk to you next time.